and Dustin. Uh, Keith is out of town, so he asked if someone would volunteer to do the pastoral exhortation part of this. You guys lucked out because you're stuck with me. As an apology, I will open with a joke. <laughs> what do you get when a chicken lays its eggs on top of a hill? You know this joke because I told you. <laughs> you blocked it from your memory. Scrabble eggs. No, you get egg rolls. <laughs> if you didn't like the joke, I'm sorry. If you did like the joke, I'm more sorry because it means you share my sense of humor and it's not good. But thankfully, the joke does double as an illustration. I want you to picture that egg on top of that hill because like eggs being pulled down slopes, people are also very often pulled by forces outside of ourselves. And we tend to pick up speed until something stops us. What do I mean? Imagine that egg on top of that hill, very steep hill, almost like a pyramid. One thing that can pull the person egg, you, we'll call it you, is a need to please oneself. That's gonna pull you down the slope. We'll say that that one pulls us to the north, but still down. One other thing that can pull the person egg, you, is a need to please others. That's going to pull you down the slope. We'll say that that one pulls you to the south. Another thing that can pull on the person egg, and we can do this for all the directions, an attempt to feel emptiness inside of us, despair over our past, a desire for wealth or power. All sorts of things that make the person egg roll down the slope. And every single one of those things will make you roll faster and faster down that slope until eventually they pull you under. But there is one possibility that we haven't talked about yet. It's a far-fetched possibility. Picture your egg on top of that hill again. And what if, instead of something pulling you north, south, east, west, that egg goes straight up off the top of the hill, directly into the air. It doesn't roll down, it goes straight up. That is impossible for the egg to do, and I agree with you. And that is why it is a perfect illustration of the effect of the gospel in our lives. There is one thing in all of our lives that will not pull us down. And it is the miraculous power of the gospel when God reaches into our lives and acts on us and pulls us up. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one and only way to overcome that vicious downward pull that everything else causes. I'm sure that you all recognize from that example that slide downward is inevitably caused by sin, and it always, always, always leads to death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Estrangement from God. So clearly, the gospel is important. We know that. So don't answer me out loud. Think to yourself, or do if you want, but don't. Silently, Summarize the gospel in one sentence. 
Think about that. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. While we're going there, we're going to pray. Father, thank you for who you are and for all of the things that you do for us. Thank you for sending your Son. Help us to explore now the meaning of the gospel, of the words, and the good news that convey all the information there is to know about Jesus that brings saving faith. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, our scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1-8. through 8. Scripture says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also, that being Paul. Now it's important to put the text into context. That's going to help us understand what it's saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us that this book is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Somewhat like Houston, Corinth was an important place of business. It was a commerce place. And somewhat like Houston, because of that, it was a place where different cultures and different religions mingled. Anyone who has read 1 Corinthians before knows that the church at Corinth was not doing too hot. It was not doing very well. One of the reasons Paul wrote his letter was to advise a church struggling with theological and spiritual issues. Even though Paul's letter is around 2,000 years old, which I think is about 500 years older than the oldest surviving pair of socks, there's a trivia for you, it deals with issues that trouble us today. It talks about the church's entanglement with surrounding culture. It talks about cliques among believers. It talks about church practices. It talks about the use of spiritual gifts. And it talks about personal sin. In most translations, you can see how Paul breaks his letter up by each of these topics. After dealing with the most pressing issues of strife and sexual immorality, Paul dives into a grab bag of other topics. When he does, he settles into a rhythm. He starts his teaching on marriage in chapter 7 with the word now. His discussion of food offered to idols in chapter 8 begins with now. The topic of church practices in chapter 11 begins with now. And his discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 begins with the word now. Now. What was the first word, the scripture that we just read? Now. So, we can see that Paul is starting a new train of thought. He's going to start talking about the gospel message of Christ's resurrection and its power. 
Paul begins by introducing his topic. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. Again, the Corinthian church had problems. It was fractured with people splitting off. Some are over here. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. It was fractured. It was self-centered. They neglected the needy. They didn't care. It had severe, severe moral failings. Like a guy having intercourse with his father's wife. Moral failings. It had pride issues. One believer would sue another believer. No bueno. Did I get that one right? <laughs> think about that. And now think about the, the complaints levied against the American church overall today. Is it fair to say that the main complaints about the American church are division, disregard for the oppressed, sexual immorality, and an absence of brotherly love? Yeah. Pretty fair to say. So Corinth is not too far off from the American church. So turning back to Corinth, we see also, in addition to all these other things, that the Corinthians' entanglement with the surrounding culture there in Greece was causing them to doubt foundational truths of the Christian faith. What do I mean? The Greeks were very, very, very firmly, especially the educated Greeks, were firmly entrenched in this notion that physical matter, physical things were corrupt. And so it was weird for them, it was hard for them to think, ah, yes, resurrection of a physical body is the objective of all this. They had a hard time with that. And that was starting to influence the Corinthians. So because of this, Paul reminds his readers who overall are church-going people, at least nominal believers, people that Paul himself had taught, of the gospel. You would be forgiven for thinking that this morning all I'm going to do is talk to you this evening, rather. That is an old habit, sorry. You would be forgiven for thinking that this evening all I'm going to talk to you about is doctrine. I'm not. We're going to get there. There's going to be a personal application. But we've got to go through the doctrine first, just like Paul did. So let's start with Paul's terminology. If you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard at least a dozen times that gospel means good news. You're right, it does. Sometimes it has a little more nuance than that. If we go back past the Old English intermediate word that got us the English word gospel, we arrive at the Greek word euangelion, during Jesus and Paul's day, this was not just a theological term. It was a word that common, ordinary people would sometimes use in a non-religious context. And one of those uses was very specific. It was meant to refer to a kingdom's victory in battle and the outcome, the good, that that victory would do for the citizens of the kingdom. Is that enough? Everybody sees where we're going, right? You got it? Keep that word usage in your mind because we're going to see some of that history spill into Paul's use of the term euangelion. So that's sort of the 
tone of Paul's gospel. We have a general sense of how the Corinthians would have understood what he's saying when he says gospel. But Paul also gives us the history. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 gives us the history. It's the same thing we just read. It was, first, the gospel which I, Paul, proclaimed as good news to you, the Corinthians. What does that mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul wrote, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Paul was responsible for leading at least many of the Corinthians to Christ through the gospel. And he adds that the same gospel that at one time he delivered to them, he also received. And then he adds that they had accepted his message. In fact, he adds that the Corinthians as a whole were standing in the message even as he had written the letter. They were holding to the gospel despite all their problems. It was something that they understood. And then he adds, it is the gospel by which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I proclaim to you as good news unless you believe for nothing. So he sort of gives us a procedural history. Here's how it got to you from me. Here's what it's doing. And here's what it will be. The gospel is the means, the tool, that God is using to work out the Corinthians' salvation. Just like us. It was the initial hope that will carry them to the end. But, Paul says, only if they hold fast the word which he proclaimed, unless they believe for nothing. What does that mean? Unlike ordinary teaching, the gospel is not something that you can just reach out and grasp. It is a spiritual thing. It cannot just be learned. It has to be taught. Taught by God and received in faith, also given by God. Knowledge of the Gospel, knowledge of its facts, without, as Paul says, clinging to it, is worthless. If one only believes the Gospel in the sense that one understands it without persevering in the faith, and by God's grace, true believers will... One has believed for nothing. It is not about effort of will or losing salvation. It is a reality of God carrying to completion the work that He has begun in you as contrasted with the absence of anything spiritual happening in people who don't really, truly believe. What do I mean? Return to Jesus' explanation of his parable of the sower. We kind of remember it, I think. Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. Jesus talking. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word 
And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then finally, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus gives us four categories of believers. Those who don't even understand the gospel, who don't hear it. Those who hear and gladly receive it, but don't believe, who have no root, no sincere belief, and so who do not persevere. Those who hear the word, but in whom the word is unfruitful, because they're still too married to the world. And finally, those who hear the word, and who understand it, and who bring forth fruit. There's no saving power in a belief that only acknowledges God for what He is. We know this. James 2, 19-20. You believe that God is one. By the way, James, read sarcasm into this, because it totally is. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So-called belief without the activity of the Spirit within you that brings new life does not deserve to be called faith. It is useless, and it can be proven useless because it has no fruit. It is dead. But, as Jesus' parable told us, God will cause the one who hears the Word and understands it to bear fruit. This is something that has to be understood. Fruit is a consequence of what a thing is, not what the thing does. You bear fruit as a believer because you are united to the vine, which is Jesus. Bearing fruit is as much a part of a believer as having apples is a part of being an apple tree. It is evidence of what you are. Just as much as apples are evidence of apple tree. Apples are not how apple tree earns status as apple tree. It is evidence that it is an apple tree. So when summarizing its history, the history of this gospel message to the Corinthians, Paul reminds his readers about their relationship to the gospel, lest they are deluding themselves and are not that last category of person. So Paul has given us the gospel's general sense. He's given us its history to the Corinthians. Now we can move on to Paul's discussion of its content. Bring back your summary, of the, your one-sentence summary. Bring it back to your mind. Let's compare our answer to Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3-8. through For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
for Paul, this is the gospel in a nutshell. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So the gospel, as we know, is fundamental. It was the core of Paul's belief. It was the core of the belief of the early church. So what is this fundamental truth? What's the one sentence answer to the question? At a 30,000 foot level, the gospel truth is that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was resurrected according to the scriptures, and that this is a historical reality that happened. Let's break what Paul says into parts so we don't miss anything. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Like the Corinthians, we should know by now that Christ's death for sin is a vital part of the Gospel. Christ sacrificed His life so that the wrath of God would be poured out on Him who did not deserve it instead of us who did because of our sins. That satisfied justice. So that is the antidote to the poison of mankind's fallen state. This death of Christ is what makes the gospel so powerful. Romans 1.16 says, Paul again, by the way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. But Jesus' death for sin, His crucifixion, is the exact same thing that makes the gospel such a difficult pill for people to swallow. Many people, for example, both now and today, are willing to accept Jesus as a good person and teacher. That's not hard. That's easy. Before His death, people were willing even to see Jesus as the Messiah. That was not so hard. Do you remember when the crowd found Jesus and they're like, we're going to make you king by force, and He had to slip away? What about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday? I'm pretty sure people were proclaiming, there's the guy. There is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're willing to say He's Messiah. They probably would have even accepted Him as a resurrected person. Some Jews believed in the possibility of resurrection. In fact, Scriptures talk about Elijah and Elisha bringing people back from the dead. If they didn't believe, talk to Lazarus. Jesus brought him back, I don't know, within the last year. So could they have even accepted Jesus as a resurrected person? Maybe. But the idea that Jesus was crucified as the Messiah, that Jesus' crucifixion was the fulfillment of His role as the Christ, was totally unacceptable. 1 Corinthians 1 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. We'll start with the Jews. A a crucified Christ means a cursed Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, quoting Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Literally, wood. Talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about the cross. The Jews understood that scripture from Deuteronomy. They understood that crucifixion would be a cursed death. And to them, a cursed Messiah was an impossibility. It was an oxymoron, like hot ice. Doesn't compute. They failed to appreciate what Galatians told us. That Jesus took that curse on our behalf. Because of us. So for the Jews, Christ's death was a stumbling block. They don't get to have all the fun, though. For Gentiles, us, the analysis is not even that straightforward, or is much more straightforward, and is not even that sophisticated. For us, the crucifixion, for our natural man, without the scriptures that the Jews had, the crucifixion and Christ's death was just foolishness. To us, it was just silly. It was a joke. But Paul notes in verse 3 that Jesus' scandalous death was according to the Scriptures. It was not some divine surprise that God sprung on the world. He said it was going to happen. For example, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11-12. through 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The promise of Jesus' sacrificial death was always there to see. Years and years and years and years and years before he was here. And of course, the crucifixion is not the end of the story and is not the end of the gospel. The resurrection is just as important, if not more so. Paul adds in verse 4 that he was buried, he being Jesus, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And Paul adds, again here, that even the resurrection was according to the Scriptures. For example, Peter finds the resurrection in the Psalms. In Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 28, Peter is giving the famous Pentecost sermon. He discusses the resurrection, and he quotes Psalm 16, saying, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him, this is still Jesus, to be held in his power. And here comes the quote. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make full, make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter looks to the Psalms, and in the Psalms he sees a prophecy of Christ's resurrection. Just like the crucifixion, that truth was always there to be seen. So Paul has packed in the gospel's tone, its history, and its content. And then he adds, the gospel has many witnesses. 
It is interesting to note, by the way, that he turns to the personal witnesses after he talks about its attestation in Scripture. Make of that what you will. Christ appeared in his resurrected body to Cephas or Peter. Then he appeared to the group commonly known as the Twelve. We all recognize that as the Twelve Disciples, less Judas. Then he made a single appearance to 500 believers, most of whom were still alive at the time that Paul was writing. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles, which is probably a second appearance to the Twelve, but it could also be other apostles. And then finally, he appeared to Paul himself. Why do these details matter? Why do we care? Paul is establishing the veracity, the truthfulness, the historicity of the resurrection gospel. He's saying, these people saw it. I'm not just telling you stuff. Paul saw it. Why would Paul lie? This is the same Paul who once hated and persecuted Christians. He has no reason to lie. He's a witness. He says, don't trust me. There's several hundred people walking around today. They also saw him. Go ask one of them. You don't trust them? What about Peter? What about the twelve and the apostles? These are folks who are like being persecuted every day and running the risk of being murdered. Try, try them. See, if they, see what they tell you. Those are credible witnesses. The one that I personally like the best is James. This is probably not James the Apostle. This is probably James, the son of Mary, i.e. Jesus' half-brother. James, who helped lead the Jerusalem church. James is like Paul. He has no reason to lie about this stuff. James gets a mention in one of the Gospels, John chapter 7, verse 5, and it is not very flattering. The Scripture says, For not even his, Jesus, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So while Jesus is wandering around the countryside doing miracles, James is like, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe in you. But it is this same James who had a change of heart and who came to Christ and who saw the resurrected Lord and who became a leader in the church. Like Paul, this man has no reason to lie. So Paul is summoning up evidence to persuade the Corinthians that Jesus really was bodily resurrected. Which really brings us to the ultimate point. Why does this, especially the emphasis on this resurrection, why does this matter so much to Paul? The Corinthians would appear to have much more significant problems. Why is he dealing with this so much? It matters because the gospel is our faith and the gospel depends entirely on the resurrection of Jesus. And the Corinthians had lost sight of both. They had lost sight of the resurrection and they had lost sight of the gospel's dependence on it. If Jesus is dead or if his body is not raised, then your faith, then all of Christianity is worthless. Does that sound too harsh? Skip ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. What's it say? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. <laughs> you are still in your sins. Why? Why is it so important that Jesus was resurrected? Scripture will tell us. Jesus, here's the Scripture. 
was designated as the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. So many people have laid claim to some type of divine authority or divine lineage. One of them, one, came back from the dead of his own power. Jesus' resurrection was God's confirmation that this man really was His Son. That the things He taught you, the things He told you are true. He has God's stamp of approval. And that God accepted His sacrifice. The resurrection is God's confirmation for everybody that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. That is the key to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says... That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. To believe in one's heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe in your heart that Jesus is God's Son. Because that is the significance of the resurrection. It is to believe that Jesus, as Romans says, is the Son of God in power. I promised you earlier that this wouldn't just be doctrine and it isn't. Here comes the practical component. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 clarifies that the gospel of Jesus' resurrection is good news about His victory over death. Not just His. It is good news over His victory over death and how it will benefit the citizens of His kingdom. There it is. Euangelion. People have spent days pouring over the rest of chapter 15. We do not have days. You are happy. Like many students pressed for time and with a pending reading assignment, we are going to do the most expedient thing and skip directly to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 58. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, Then will come about the word that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As the context we skipped makes clear, Paul is talking about the end times, and not just the end times, but the end of the end times. He is talking about the coming day when your body is resurrected and glorified the same way that Jesus' was after His own resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. We have talked a lot about scriptural prophecy today. What we just read has another one. On that final day, Christ will fulfill another prophecy. Death will be swallowed up in His victory. The words, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Is yet another quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Specifically, the references are Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and 
Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. As with all other prophecy, Christ will fulfill these prophecies. Although our final resurrection is not yet, Christ's victory, His accomplishment, is already. I like it. (laughs) Because Jesus lives, His believers will also. Why just believers? Although Paul taunts death, Paul taunts sin, he does not downplay it. He recognizes that death is a dangerous thing. But for Jesus, except for Jesus, death would indeed have the victory. Death would indeed have a sting. Death is an enemy we all must face. Barring the Lord coming home, barring the Lord coming back and us going home, you will die. You are going to die. You will face death. You cannot defeat it. Not by yourself. You cannot withstand death because you were already pierced by its stinger. You have sinned. I have sinned. We all have sinned. It is a miserable little club. We cannot take that sin away from death. cannot take that sting of sin away from death. We cannot render death harmless because the power of the sting, the power of sin, is the law. The law is absolute justice. That nobody but God can satisfy. You can't satisfy it, so the law makes sin too strong for you. And because sin is too strong for you, death is painful and something to be afraid of because what it means is if you die in your sins with the law unsatisfied, you get the law's punishment, which is estrangement from God. And it lasts a really, really long time. Without help, we die in our sins unreconciled to God. But one person did satisfy law. That person is Jesus. He lived so righteously before God that the law did not cause sin to hold any sway over him. In other words, Jesus was under no condemnation when he died because he never sinned. He fulfilled the law. And then he did something more amazing. He took our sins and sacrificed himself on our behalf and gave us his righteousness. Which means where he would have been immune to the sting of sin and death, those who put their trust in Him now are. He broke the power of sin over every believer, and because death's sting is sin, sin no longer holds any sway over God's children. Death is no longer something for us to be afraid of. It is not a thing that can hurt you. It is a feed without a stinger. A fat little thing that can do nothing. Because God, in His grace, credits to a believer's account Jesus' own righteousness, we can join in Paul's taunt. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You might still be asking yourself, where is the practical application? Look at the very end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Here it is. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's your application. Therefore, says Paul. That is an important word. It means consequently, as a result of. Because of what I just said, this is the outcome. Because of the gospel message of Jesus' victory over death, you, insofar as you are a believer, are meant to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Hope in Jesus' victory, fixing our eyes upon it, affects our character because it makes us steadfast and immovable. Steadfast in the faith, which means fixed in ourselves, not blown around. Fixed, firm. And it also makes us immovable, which means the world's not going to walk up and tip you over because your hope is strong. It also affects how we live. It causes us to overflow with service to God. Why is that? Why is it so easy to not do things for God when we're not looking at the resurrection? Could it possibly be because we have the wrong perspective on life when we don't focus on the resurrection? Is it because we take our glasses off and we do this and just stare at our life right there and don't look out there? The Gospel encourages us to be fruitful. And finally, hope in Jesus affects our motives. It changes it from us to Him. And because of that, because it's Him, Him working, not us, we can trust that nothing we do for Him is futile. Far from just doctrine, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, like all Scripture, strikes directly at our heart. Perhaps you have found yourself shaken in your faith. I have. When that is so, turn to the victorious good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Perhaps you have found yourself shaken by the world. When that happens... Turn to the victorious good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And here is a good one. Maybe you are tired and discouraged about what you're doing in your life. Maybe you think your work for God is unnoticed. You think it slipped his attention, which is silly, but will humor you. Maybe you think your effort was wasted and you haven't seen any fruit and never will. God's promise, God's promise, not mine, is this. Your work, your labor, anything you do for God is not in vain. It's not. God sees, God cares, and it's not in vain. Because of Christ's victory over death, if you believe in Him, you have this to look forward to. One day, you will walk up to Jesus, or He will walk up to you, just like I am walking towards you right now, in a body, and you have a body, 
and you will be with me as surely as I am standing right here right now. That is the sort of access you will have to Jesus someday. I cannot do it justice. So we will let Scripture speak for itself. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And here it is. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Tell me with a straight face that this life has not hurt you. One day, God will wipe away the tears from the eyes of every single believer that life has hurt. That is the depth of His grace and love and mercy. That is what Jesus came to accomplish. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. The effect of the gospel in our lives, why it is so important, why Paul reminded this sin-ridden church of the gospel, is that the gospel, the hope of Jesus' resurrection, fixes our eye on that day. On the day when God will wipe every tear away. On the day where, God willing, you will hear Jesus say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. The effect of the Gospel is to help us to run the race before us, always looking forward to the fulfillment of that last prophecy. That is the practical effect. As Paul says, it is the truth of Christ's death and resurrection that encourages us and more than that, enables us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You that we have heard the news that Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected all according to the scriptures that you had written long before he ever came. Lord, we pray that we would not descend to where the Corinthians were. And to avoid that, God, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on the gospel. To always bear in mind the truth of every single one of those elements of the gospel and to cling to them to look forward to them, to hope in them. Not focusing on this life, but focusing on Jesus' victory. And that in that, you would be able to use us to produce much fruit. And one day, we will be able to look you in the face because of the hope that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.